Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Eric Kaufman. He's an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a professor of politics at Burbeck College at the University of London and the author of several books. His work focuses on issues of demography, religious and national identity, and cultural politics. In a recent piece for City Journal, A Necessary Intervention, he outlines an exhaustive strategy to stem the tide of progressive authoritarianism in higher education. And in a new report that's getting a lot of attention for the Manhattan Institute, he explains the role that media, cultural, and academic forces play in misleading American society about the extent of racism. So, Eric, thanks very much for joining us. Brian, it's great to be here. Uh, Let's start with your piece for City Journal, A Necessary Intervention, it was called. There you uh, discuss just how suffocating the environment can be in universities for professors who, and students who dissent from the, you know, the, the elite left-wing orthodoxies of the campus. You find in your research that one-third of right-leaning academics and graduate students say they've been disciplined for their speech, while younger academics are, in fact, more likely to support crackdowns on speech and even firing dissenters. So that suggests, as you say, that things will will get worse rather than better. And justifying, in your view, government intervention to ensure freedom of expression on campus. So maybe you could say a little bit about this research, and uh, then we can talk about the reforms you advocate. This research was not just uh, uh, the UK; it was also for the US, right? Yeah, that's right. It it came out in a in a report for the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, uh, based on eight surveys across the UK, US, and Canada, f- focusing slightly more on the US in this report. Um, and so there are really two strands that that the survey data and and the surveys were mainly of academics and some of uh, PhD students uh, and a, and a little bit on master's students. What this really turned up was uh, on the one hand we have very high self censorship as you mentioned amongst conservative academics, but even centrist academics in the U.S. about thirty five percent of them uh, thirty five to forty percent were reporting uh, self censorship and or also saying that their departments were hostile climates for their um, their beliefs. And, and so conservatives, it was sort of like 70% saying a hostile climate. Uh, in the social sciences and humanities, about three quarters of, of American and British academics said that their departments, uh, well, said they self-censored. So we have this powerful uh, lack of freedom uh, for amongst uh, conservative-leaning scholars and increasingly amongst centrist-leaning scholars. Also asked essentially about willingness to discriminate. So four in 10 U.S. academics would discriminate against a known Trump supporter. Uh, and, and perhaps as a result, fewer than, only about one in 10 Trump supporting academics, and there are only a small number of them, but only one in 10 would be willing to share their beliefs with colleagues. Um, and that's something that I think pretty close to nine in 10 sort of Democrat uh voting uh, academics agreed with. So this is not anything that, that that's down to paranoia amongst the conservative academics. This is something that even the liberal academics understand is going on. And would you say that uh, this, so when you talk about centrist academics, um, you're referring mostly to people in the humanities or, or is this also in the sciences? Um, in other words, does, 
you know, does the opinion that's being suppressed or self-suppressed uh, relate specifically to their work or, or is it, uh, you know, just their private political opinions? Well, there were a number of questions that, that, that we used to get at this. So one is their, pro clearly you have the highest degree of self-censorship amongst um, people's political opinions. Now, the surveys were heavily focused on social science and humanities, academia, top 100 institutions in the U.S. Um, the sciences, you had somewhat lower uh, self-censorship and also, and, and some, they were somewhat less left-wing. That is, the, the other part of this, of course, is the political composition of academia. You know, for social sciences and humanities, it was something on the order of 14 on the left for everyone on the right, about 70 to 75% left wing against only about 5% conservative. We saw that in Canada as well, and that tallies with other research. So you've got this very strong monoculture, which is yeah, inducing its own pressures along with the administrative, uh, you know, the sort of cancel culture, threatened, being threatened with discipline and so on. Um, but yeah, this is mainly social sciences and humanities that I focused on because these are really the politicized disciplines where the subjects you choose to study, the perspectives that you take uh, are so much more conditioned by, uh, you know, norms and taboos and red lines and so on. I mean, it's, it's not the kind of thing that would apply as much to studying butterflies or, or different kinds of chemical reactions. Right. Um, now, what what are some of the reforms that you, the government reforms that you advocate to, um, you know, reduce this this kind of self censorship and and make the campus more accommodating to a variety of different political views? Yeah, I mean, really, this is uh, the, the policy solutions that I that I advocate. Uh, in some respects, mimic those that that the British government has undertaken in response to one of our previous reports over here for. I think tank called policy exchange. Um, looking at the history of speech restrictions, you can see that even in the 1960s, the student movement already was restricting speech on campus, and and so this is kind of a a feature and not, not a bug. And I think it's a long running uh, feature of the ideology of the sort of cultural left ideology I term left modernism, which is uh, dominant now in academia. And so because it, it is integral to that ideology, uh, as that ideology penetrates more and more deeply in these institutions, uh, we should expect um, academic freedom to decline proportionately. And therefore, in addition to the fact that younger academics are uh, twice as likely to favor um, dismissing controversial academic staff. So, so this problem is only going to get worse, and we've seen that it's persisted. It started with speech codes in the 19, uh, late 1980s, um, so this has been going now over three decades. It's been getting worse. There, there are still people, incredibly, who somehow believe this is just a phase. That, but it's not. It, in my view, it represents a sort of deepening. So the, what has to happen? The only way the universities can be reformed, they can't reform themselves. Uh, you need outside intervention. The only credible intervention can, uh, is government regulation. Um, even relying on the courts, uh, to, you know, to sue is, in my view, a capitulation because be, what that means is. Even if you're exonerated, which often is the case, uh, the process, as one University of Texas pr professor put it, um, the process is the punishment. So you, you're going to learn next time not to actually open your mouth because you don't want to have to go through all that expense and time. So we need the government to essentially proactively apply the law to uh, to universities to say that you know academic freedom takes priority over uh, reputational 
questions over subjective definitions of harassment and emotional safety. When the when your policies come into conflict, the academic freedom one must supersede, or if it doesn't, you're going to be fined and made to change that. So essentially an activist regulator. That's the model that uh, the UK is pioneering, and we're going to see what happens uh, going forward on this. But if you don't have that in place, the incentives are just not there because the people who have the ear of the administration are the activists, whether in committees, whether on social media. And, and it's just too easy for the administrations to bend to them. Now, there, you know, there's always a risk when you create a new government agency that there's going to be um, you know, institutional capture, and that usually tends to be by the left. How would you propose guarding against that possibility? in this, this kind of arrangement? Well, I think this is where, I mean, people have to realize that the status quo, doing nothing is essentially, um, you know, having a, a hostile government on the other side who's against academic freedom, you know, you couldn't get much worse than it already is. Um, it can get a lot better. So there's really only upside in many ways. Um, and so those who think that that somehow if you get the wrong government, things are going to go bad, well, they could go bad, but then if your people get in, uh, they can turn things around. Now, I think what we see, say, in Britain now is there's there's a real attempt for the first time that I can remember uh, the government is trying, you have to get your people onto these committees, into these regulatory bodies. Um, you have to install people who will push, push the agenda uh, of trying to reform things and, and move back towards free speech. Um, if you think that you can sort of have a hands-off approach and somehow cut your way out of this problem, I think you're going to be disabused pretty quickly. So, so I, what I'm saying in a way is that the risk of government uh, intervention is, my, in, an, in my view, very low. I think it, it's, in a way, what we're talking about is um, just as the Supreme Court, for example, in the U.S., you know, both parties try and get their candidates in, we know that people's political beliefs affect their legal judgments. So it's probably right that there's a certain amount of politicization of that process. Similarly, with these uh, higher education regulations in universities, they are also politicized, but they've been able to hide under this banner of not being political. And what's happened is under that radar, uh, you've had this creeping politicization. So we've actually got to open that up to um, uh, more scrutiny, democratic contestation. To my mind, that's just much more democratic. Yes, it may switch from one hand, one political, uh, one set of political hands to the other. But over time, hopefully, as this is exposed to normal politics and media, I th I would hope that a kind of bipartisan norm around academic freedom would emerge because that's really where most people are. Sure, um, you know, toward the end of your piece, you you mentioned another possibility, and and I have to think of this myself as as the the way to go which is to create alternative institutions that uh, don't, you know, that don't subscribe to this kind of uh, um, censorship or, or a mon political monoculture. And uh, you, you mentioned Stanford's Hoover Institution as one such example. Um, and there, you know, there's, there's schools that uh, resist the left-wing indoctrination, like, like Hillsdale um, and Grove City College. Uh, what about this institution building uh, alternative model? Uh, do you think that's plausible? I, I guess one problem with it is it takes a lot to build an institution. Yeah, I think that the you know universities are amongst the most long-standing institutions. There are so many network effects and reputational and legacy effects, donor money, 
there's so much, so many resources that are controlled that that it's, in my view, it's not a realistic uh, scenario that, that you'd be able to build alternative institutions that would have the reputational clout, you know, that would draw people who are interested in uh, the status considerations that drive people to universities. And, and really, it's the top hundred that have a lot of the influence in the culture. Um, I mean, pure indoctrination is not really, in my view, something that is as much of a problem. And the studies don't tend to show that student views shift a lot. It's much more about influence in the broader culture. Um, so I guess it's a bit like saying, can we build another Google or another Twitter? I just think that when something gets large enough, uh, the network effects are such that you just, it, it becomes all, essentially like a monopoly and you can't really do it. So I guess my my view on this is that the sort of idea that you can exit and build an alternative universe is, is not, in my in my view, very realistic. You need to try and disrupt and reform uh, the existing institutions with quite intrusive, uh, getting your people onto these committees and quite intrusively, uh, well, tweaking laws. So, for example, the British government now, with their new academic freedom bill, are going to be essentially specifying in very close detail um, which university policies take precedence whenever there is a clash. That is left loose right now. So a lot of the legislation is not properly specified. Any wiggle room is going to be exploited. You've got to shut down all of that wiggle room uh, by, you know, legally and also through proactively enforcing these policies and also pro uh, political discrimination sort of coming down hard on that. And, and I'm quite encouraged to see what the conservatives have been able to do here on many fronts, whether it's racial equalities, whether it's schooling, whether it's universities. They're trying to push back on the creeping takeover by left modernism that's been going on, activist-driven uh, within these institutions. I think that is the only way to take them back. I don't think, you know, in, in, in any sort of lifetime of ours or, or <laughs> probably even in our century, we're going to be able to build an alternative infrastructure. Um, I'd like to turn to your recent report, The Social Construction of Racism, which has come out from, from the Manhattan Institute. Uh, you, you note there a very a powerful point that racism in the United States has declined by any objective measure, yet Americans seem oblivious of this fact. Uh, indeed, you show that many Americans are deeply misinformed about some of these these controversies. Eight in 10 African-American survey respondents, you point out, believe that young black men are more likely to be shot to death by the police than to die in a traffic accident. And six in 10 white liberals agree with that point. Uh, what is going on here? Why is there such a distorted per perception of the state of race relations in America? Well, it's a bit like in the same way the academic um, freedom is being eclipsed by this new ideology. This new new ideology is also uh, affecting people's perceptions of reality. I mean, it, it, essentially the ideology that sacralizes race, gender, and sexuality, which then means that people don't aren't able to get an objective story from the press or from, from educational institutions. So in this case, yeah, I mean, we have a very clear fact, which is that um, young Af African-American men are about 10 times more likely to die in a, die in a car accident um, than from a policeman's bullet. 
and so I was interested to know, you know, who actually is going to get this question right on a survey, and is that affected by their ideology? Lo and behold, yes, it is. Only fifteen percent of white Trump supporters, but you know, six in ten white uh, Biden supporters, are getting this question wrong, and and eight in ten. Um, black Biden supporters. Uh, so what this is really essentially saying is that people's um, ideological priors and and which which will affect to some degree the media that they consume and the networks they're in shapes their view of reality. And in this case, um, their view of a, a simple statistical fact. But but I go throughout the report and you can see that in fact people's perceptions of how much racism there is, whether it's risen or not, uh, even their personal experiences of racism heavily colored by their ideology. Um, but in, in your view, this is really uh, being driven in part by the, the media and political elites, right? Yeah. I mean, you can see, for example, starting in around 2014, what Matthew Iglesias calls the Great Awakening, which is that major legacy newspapers um, like the New York Times and, and um, Washington Post, but also newer websites, part, more partisan websites, all made a big shift towards um, using terms like racism and white supremacy and white privilege and all of these sorts of things in a much more concerted way. And this is partly due to just activist discourses on social media, which was emerging strongly, and also new partisan websites like BuzzFeed and, and Vox. And so all of this then feeds into this huge increase in mentions of the term uh, racism uh, in the media and, and also in English language books. And you can track that in big data pretty easily, uh, as Zach Goldberg has done. Now, what that then means is uh, people who are on these media are getting exposed to these stories at greater frequency. And so what you see is that the share of white liberals saying that racism is a big problem in America kind of roughly doubles between 2014-15 and 2020, from about 40-50% 40, up to about 80%. It stays the same for Republicans at around 30 or 34, 30 to 40%. Um, so we've now got this 50-point gap in perceptions that's opened up over the last five years or so. Um, and that's very much, that's entirely a media phenomenon. It's got nothing to do with reality. We know that uh, interracial marriage is continuing to increase. We know that attitudes uh, to interracial marriage have become more and more tolerant. Um, we know that the number of police shootings of African-Americans has dropped 60 to 80% since the late 1960s. So all of the kind of attitudinal behavioral basics that we've been tracking for years are all looking up. But Somehow people are perceiving things getting worse, particularly if you're a, a liberal. Uh, and and that's, that's the striking thing, is, is the divergence between reality and perception. It's worth, uh, I think, talking a bit about the uh, history, uh, the roots of this, this kind of mindset, this ideology you're describing. Um, you know, some, some would see it going back to the 1980s and the early critical race theorists, people like Derek Bell. Others go a little further back to uh, the Frankfurt School, Horkheimer and Adorno, Herbert Marcuse, uh, you know, whose whose thought was influential with the new left of the 60s and 70s. Uh, but in in your view, this uh, this kind of new progressivism has roots that go even further back still to what you describe as left modernism which uh, began with uh, bo bohemian intellectuals all the way back in the early 20th century. 
So I'm wondering if you could discuss this history just a little bit today and why you think it's you know, relevant to understand it. Well, I, I think, yeah, because the, the ideology that's dominant today, um, which some call wokeness, which is really about the sacralization of um, historically disadvantaged race, gender, and sexual minorities, and that has its roots with a fusion of liberalism and socialism. So you had liberalism's traditional concern with um, you know, racial minorities, gender minorities, religious minorities, such as Jews and Catholics. Um, and that had been going since the, you know, early 19th century uh, emancipation of Catholics, for example. Then that is then uh, transposed onto a socialist mindset, uh, oppressor oppressed type mindset, where um, the view there is that, you know, you have one group of people that are oppressors and one that are the oppressed. Um, and, and so it's now instead of the class uh, fraction being oppressed, it's, it's, it's racial and gender minorities being oppressed. And that, that kind of comes in in the 60s. But the origins really, I think, go back to Randolph Bourne and, and essentially the bohemian uh, so-called young intellectuals in uh, Greenwich Village, New York area in the 1910s. And for them, they saw the Wasps, the Anglo-Protestants, really as the kind of, as a boring, uh, somewhat oppressive group. And they saw newer immigrants, Jews, and Southern Eastern Europeans, and to some extent, African-Americans as full of life, exciting, interesting, etc. And so that then begins this orientation of seeing majorities as as evil and negative and minorities as, as virtuous and positive. And, and, and what we've been seeing, I would argue, is simply a turning up of the volume on that so that uh, now it's sort of whiteness and, and, and whites and, and male and, and all of that, which is negative and, and perhaps even toxified in um, minorities and, and particularly blackness or African-Americans or, or Muslim groups or, or um, other kinds of you know sexual minorities. Any minorities tend to acquire a positive valence and are seen as the oppressed, and you've got the majority as the oppressor. So that kind of structure, I would argue, goes back to the early uh, 1910s when you had immigrants, and to some extent, to a lesser extent, African Americans in the role of the sort of virtuous minority and, and the wasp as the, in the role of the kind of oppressor. And once that structure is in place, I think it's just a matter of, of turning up the volume and um, and, and then we get to where we are today. And now, of course, we've had a big increase in scale with the expansion of universities and television and now the Internet. Uh, so I think a lot of what's happened, say, since the 60s is more about scale and scaling up than it is about the actual fundamentals of the ideology, which I think have been in place for quite some time. What, you know, what's your, your view of the long term? hope of reversing some of these trends. Um, you know, it's it's easy to get pretty pessimistic when you think of the, the power of the forces behind this woke ideology right now, which now, you know, includes a lot of uh, a lot of business elites. Um, you know, what what's our hope for uh, some kind of return to sanity? Well, I think that the um, the younger generations are, if anything, more invested in this ideology. Um, and, and I, so I don't think the idea of letting things go or somehow withdrawing, um, letting the market take care of it, good ideas drive out the bad, I'm just, I'm afraid that is not going to work. This is not a 1980s problem that, that you just want to deregulate and cut your way out of. It's got to be a new approach, which I would I would call kind of a reformist conservatism, which actually uh, 
uses government power in a way. I mean, J.D. Vance mentioned this recently, but it, it is a new kind of conservatism that needs to happen that is about bringing uh, democratically elected uh, opinion and also the law and, and, and precedent uh, behind the law into these institutions. So if we think of society, it's not just government, you know, the, the typical libertarian view of government oppressing individuals. You've actually got three layers. You have government, but then you have institutions like corporations and universities and, and media, and then you have individuals. And it's the oppression, the canceling, uh, the political discrimination, that's coming out of the institutional layer. And so what we need actually is the government has to go in and regulate the institutional layer to free up the individuals. So it's a bit like, in a way, the, the federal government uh, telling universities in the U.S. South in the 60s that they had to desegregate. Um, or or if a, a gang of people's outside my door, my, I don't get my freedom back till the police show up and, and arrest them or chase them away, right? So, so it's, about, it's about thinking in terms of three layers and not two. We need to have um, governments come in and actually get their people into these institutions, um, essentially compel them to prioritize liberty over um, emotional safety and subjectivist, uh, you know, the woke definitions, which is to, to sacralize uh, minority groups and so that anything that is can be interpreted as, as being offensive uh, to the sacred groups is cause for cancellation. I think we've actually got to intervene to the point where these institutions simply have no room to actually bend to these um, to these pressures. And, and so that's going to take a much more kind of activist approach that gets into the weeds also around, you know, what is the definition of harm, the definition of racism and transphobia? All of those things need to be nailed down in very fine detail. And these institutions have to be prevented from making up their own definitions and enforcing their own uh, authority. That that has That's really what has to happen. And, and then I think the culture can begin to change. I, I always cite Cass Sunstein's work on conformity where um, you know, seatbelt laws and smoking laws actually then led to new norms around seatbelt and smoking. And I think like the same thing could occur with political discrimination and uh, free speech, that uh, both of those things could be shifted if we get uh, eventually, if, if even, for example, if the Democrats or in this country, the Labour Party tries to put in these speech restrictions, if that's politicized in an election campaign, they're going to pay an electoral price for doing that because it's very unpopular. And so eventually my hope is it will settle down as a new norm. Thanks very much, Eric. Don't forget to check out Eric Kaufman's work on the City Journal website and on the Manhattan Institute website. Uh, we'll link to his author page in the description. Our, our uh, address is www.city-journal.org. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Eric, thank you very much. Very interesting discussion. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.